was a kid, the movie Back to the Future was a really big deal. It had some great inventions in it. Flying cars that run on garbage and hoverboards over water. A lot of those inventions haven't come true, but some have. Take biometric devices, mobile payment, and personal drones. Well, maybe I took some of those from the second movie, but you know what I mean. When you're a kid, no matter the year, you're convinced that technology is gonna do amazing things in your life. But whether your predictions come true or fall short, technology really is remarkable. Today, data-driven innovation means our lives are easier, faster, and more connected. But with these advances definitely come questions. How can we reap the benefits of all this innovation and still trust that our personal information is being protected? And what role do businesses and governments play? Today, with the help of our guest, Megan Brown, we'll explore how different stakeholders are looking to answer these questions. I'm Oriana Senator, and this is Cause for Action. Cause for Action is brought to you by the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, the leading legal reform advocate in the U.S. and around the globe. Learn more at instituteforlegalreform.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Oriana Senator, Senior Vice President of Policy and Research at the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform. This is my first podcast, and I'm very excited to be talking about data privacy. This is a really important and timely issue. It's in the news, I think, in various forms basically every day. And there's been a pretty loud chorus of various stakeholders weighing in, including the business community, saying it's time for a national privacy law. And while Congress may theoretically agree with this sentiment, I think it's fair to say that things are not moving quickly. We at the U.S. Chamber and others have offered up model legislation, and we support a single national standard as the best solution. But we're not naive. The action has been, and I think will continue to be, in the states, at least for the immediate future. With me today to explore this dynamic is Megan Brown, a partner at Wiley and a well-known expert in the legal privacy and technology field. Megan received her JD from Harvard Law School, where she was the executive editor of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. She then clerked for the Honorable Grady Jolly with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. She's also served as counsel to the U.S. Attorney General and has been recognized by Chambers USA, Law 360, and the National Law Journal as a leader in the fields of technology and privacy. Currently, Megan provides stellar counsel on issues ranging from the Telephone Consumer Protection Act to enforcement of federal privacy laws to policy arguments against expanding private li- privacy liability. And Megan is not just smart about these issues, she's very energized. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for joining me. So happy to be here. So as I alluded to earlier, things are moving rather slowly up on Capitol Hill. So it's not surprising, I think, that the states are picking up the mantle, not sitting idly by, and they're taking on the issue. It's important to their constituents. What are your general impressions of state legislative activity? What do you think is motivating them to act? Is it because California has a law now, or is it something else? I think it's a mixed bag. I think some legislators are really trying to get into the weeds and come up with real solutions for their constituents, right? Nobody likes to see headlines about data breaches, um, sort of the sensational discussions about how data is being used. 
um, there's some, I think, skepticism about how data is being used or a lack of understanding of how data is being used. Um, certainly, though, California is a big part of it. Um, they sort of rushed out to do legislation because of their referendum process where an individual, very wealthy constituent, uh, was able to get privacy into the legislative discussion very quickly. And we're still sort of reaping the whirlwind of that because the attorney general is still implementing and developing the regulations, in fact, very recently, just clarifying a few things. Um, so you see states across the country that are grappling with what their constituents need and how they can fit into this patchwork. Um, some states are pretty far along, like Washington State. Others have considered legislation, and that has sort of petered out. And then others have taken sort of a commission approach where they've recognized that they don't have all the answers right now, but they're convening a whole bunch of different people to try and figure out where they should where they should land on these policy issues to be responsive to constituents. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not an easy one to figure out uh, in, in one session alone. So it's not surprising that we're seeing legislatures starting to tackle it over legislative sessions now going into perhaps year two. Um, but in order to help those folks figure out uh, what they should be thinking about, uh, ILR actually issued research recently, which you authored, on the important liability issues and how they ought to be addressed in state legislation. Uh, the paper is called Mapping a Privacy Path, uh, but we call it a toolkit for policymakers. It's supposed to really be just a useful tool, a guidebook uh, for what should be and what should not be included in state privacy legislation just from a liability perspective, sort of the back end of the bills, um, enforcement authority, penalties, what, what, what sorts of things come at the end. So let's talk about a few of the themes in that paper that you did for us. Sure. Uh, first and foremost, I think we have to talk about private right of action, or PRA as we call it. Uh, we've talked um, at ILR about PRAs in a lot of different contexts. We've pointed out that in most contexts, they really only enrich the plaintiff's lawyers who are bringing these lawsuits. They don't do much, if anything, for the consumers who have actually been injured. Um, but we think it's particularly problematic, PRAs, uh, in the privacy context, that it's just really ill-suited for that kind of or litigation. Can you um, elaborate on that a little bit, why it's particularly ill-suited in privacy? Yeah. No, I think it's really important. And you guys have done good research on, say, the TCPA and other places where uh, class action litigation and these rights to sue uh, really invite abuses of the litigation system. But I think in the privacy space and related security space, it's even more um, sort of risky or poorly a poor fit. Because in privacy, right, you've got potentially um, a large number of people that might be affected or not affected by a perceived misstep, right? So when you look at, say, a paperwork violation, you didn't get the exact kind of written consent across a large swath of consumers, that makes for potentially huge damages. But it kind of begs the question, what was really the harm to the consumers? Um, another reason that I think uh, a private right to sue, and in particular class actions, aren't uh, the ideal way to do this is it has this sort of perverse incentive where, you know, policymakers or a state attorney general might look at a particular privacy practice um, and say, listen, uh, this maybe isn't perfect, but we understand there's benefits and costs. With private rights of action and class actions, the incentives are, are different, right? You've got a, a, a lawyer who stands to make a lot of money who's going to go and find a set of plaintiffs to bring a lawsuit against um, any number of companies. And you saw with the TCPA and others, it's not just the big 
tech companies. It's not the bad actors. It can be any company, large or small, that gets uh, hit with a, a potentially crushing or ruinous class action. I mean, the recent Facebook settlement, they settled a, a case, I think we'll talk about a, a piece of litigation under a statute we'll talk about in a, in a little bit. But they were on the hook for potentially $35 billion in damages and settled for half a billion dollars. And that's a huge payday to some lawyers. And I'm not so sure that that results in better privacy outcomes for consumers. Well, we would definitely agree with that analysis. I think one other point that we've made in conjunction with the private right to sue, especially in the privacy context, is that it private lawyers are probably very ill-equipped to identify and explore um, an issue or a violation that may involve a series of companies or a series of wrongdoing or things that you would really need a robust enforcement agency to be able to find and locate and identify and then properly um, solve, essentially. Um, do you think that that's another problem with private rights of action? Yeah. I mean, not to take it to recent news, but you know, when you look at the causes of certain data breaches, for example, it may take years to really uncover publicly what was really going on. I mean, the Department of Justice recently indicted some hackers for a major data breach in the United States, but that was nation-state-sponsored cyber activity. Um, and so I think it is very difficult for a plaintiff's lawyer sitting in his office drafting a complaint to understand all of the implications of a particular set of activities that might seem in the news to be very troubling. Okay, second, I'd like to turn to uh, one of our other themes, which is cure periods. Uh, we basically think that they essentially give uh, businesses a window of time just to correct a wrong before they can be sued. Uh, even the new California law, the privacy law, very robust law, includes a cure period. Uh, although we should probably point out that the state attorney general isn't necessarily a big fan of that component of the law. But why do you think cure, imperi- cure periods are so important? Well, I think they're particularly important in the privacy context because we're kind of in uncharted territory here about what the business practices are and how the law will apply to a variety of very different businesses, some that are very data intensive, some that are not, and where data is really just how they're fulfilling the other things that they do. And I think a cure period is really helpful so that it's not a game of gotcha with these companies who are trying... Most of them, I really think, they're level best to figure out what the law means. And that's a problem with the California law because the regulations aren't all that illuminating and there's huge areas of ambiguity about how to comply. And in that sort of situation, it makes total sense to give a company a period of time to say, um, listen, we think what you're doing is not right. Uh, We think it violates X, Y, or Z. And if they agree, or even maybe if they disagree, they have a window to, quote, fix it. Whereas, you know, without a cure period, it's sort of, you know, open season to file lawsuits. And then you're in this adversarial process where a company's got to defend itself or, or maybe settle the case. But that's not a conducive way to improve privacy practices across the economy. So cure periods are a familiar legal construct from contract law that says, you made a misstep, or I think you're doing something wrong, or even you're in breach, uh, but you have time to fix it because otherwise it would be unreasonable to nail you with damages. 
Well, that definitely does sound reasonable. Uh, in addition, like you said, it really helps to cut down on the gamesmanship that might otherwise come into play. Uh, I think another one of the themes that we raise in the research, um, that being safe harbor, also gets to that theme in a, in a similar way. Uh, we've seen some good legislation out of Ohio a couple of years ago uh, that takes into account basically the business's cybersecurity system that's already in place, the program that they've already implemented, and that in the event of a data breach, they essentially get credit for having that system already in place. Uh, what do you think important takeaways are for legislators when it comes to safe harbors? I mean, I think the question for a legislator is, what are you actually trying to accomplish? Are you trying to move private companies with wildly different resource abilities in a desired direction to improve or change behaviors that you think need to change? Or are you setting up um, a payday for litigants and lawyers to say, you know, you committed a misstep, I've got you, now I get to make a bunch of money off of you, just to be glib here. Um, so to me, it's a question of what's the problem you're trying to solve for? And if you're really trying to create a constructive, you know, in a, in a fast-moving, technologically evolving marketplace, if you're trying to encourage good behavior, safe harbors make a lot of sense because you can identify the practices you like and give companies credit for doing their best to meet them. And so that, to me, is a, is a much more humane, and maybe that's not the, the exact right word, but it seems like a more sane way to regulate the private sector with all of its diversity and not stifle innovation. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that a lot of the tools that we include in this toolkit are designed with an eye towards common sense solutions that do encourage good corporate and business behavior um, for just for the sake of itself. That's a good thing that a legislator should want to promote. Yeah, I mean, I thought you guys did a nice job in articulating at the outset the nature of the project was, you know, to, to be practical and to be useful and not to um, be too... Uh, doctrinaire and say, you know, we're not going to play ball at all, but assuming these certain things happen, what's a reasonable way forward? Well, I certainly hope the state legislators who take a look at it agree with you there. Um, another tool that I'd like to raise uh, that's a little bit more perhaps process-oriented um, has to do with limiting municipality litigation. We are already contending with a really problematic patchwork of state laws when it comes to data breach already in the country. Uh, and we think it would be a real problem to replicate that patchwork by essentially putting another blanket of privacy laws on top of all the states and allowing municipalities or local governments or even school districts to sue in addition under these laws would just increase that patchwork exponentially, I mean by the thousands. So how do we prevent things from getting completely out of control there? I think a lot of it boils down to the sort of organic state law that's at issue, which is, you know, California in lots of circumstances has found that the state AG is the right person to enforce certain laws and to pursue public policy in a consistent way across the state. And I think in many circumstances, you know, that's the right call, particularly something like this where, you know, you already you know, we're sort of um, hoping for, for comprehensive federal legislation. At the very least, you'd think there should be comprehensive state legislation and not empowering localities who might disagree with the enforcement priorities of a state AG to go off on their own and do stuff. Because 
as a practical matter, if you're a company facing litigation from one of the 40,000 municipalities in this country, it's going to be very difficult to come up with one unified way to settle that or solve it, right? If you have uh, municipalities within a state warring with each other, uh, it makes imminent sense to me that the state attorney general would be able to superintend that um, instead of allowing everyone to just do their own thing. Right. And and to that last point, I think this is an interesting opportunity to also present this issue to the state attorneys general who are also sort of uniquely situated to have an interest in the enforcement of this to ensure that municipalities are not sort of usurping their power uh, and authority over this issue and creating a really problematic patchwork for their constituents who are the businesses attempting to comply with these laws. So changing gears a little bit, uh, I want to raise something that you kind of alluded to earlier. Uh, We have other problematic state laws that are already on the books. I here am referring to the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA, which comes first to mind when we say problematic state laws. (laughs) Uh, This is a very broad and sweeping law that the Illinois Supreme Court actually examined back in early 2019. Can you talk a little bit about what the court decided there and the impact that it's had um, in opening up essentially the floodgates of litigation in Illinois? Yeah, to cut to the chase, um, a plaintiff had sued Six Flags Amusement Park for certain for a biometric um, tool that it used, an option it gave season pass holders to basically scan their thumb on the way in and out of the park to make it easier to get in and out. And if you've ever been to an amusement park, that's actually sounds pretty helpful. So you don't have to wait in line and remember your uh, little pass card or whatever. Well, the the person whose thumb got, um, you know, imaged was a minor and his mom sued because Six Flags hadn't complied with some of, let's just call it the paperwork um, consent obligations. Um, That case was litigated up to the state Supreme Court basically asking the state Supreme Court to say, can someone sue over what's really a technical violation when there's not a harm alleged? There wasn't a breach of the biometric data. There wasn't a misuse of it. It was really a a failure on the collection side. And unfortunately, from my perspective, the state Supreme Court said, sure, yeah, you can sue with that. It's in the statute. We don't need real harm. Um, So that, I think, decision came out on a Friday. On the following Monday, a few hundred cases got filed. Um, I don't think I'm exaggerating too much there, a sort of open season in Illinois. Uh, The troubling question then was, how is this going to be applied to non-Illinois companies and some other class actions? Uh, But it's, from my perspective, that the BIPA is a troubling law because it dispenses with the harm requirement and just sort of lets you sue in major class action lawsuits over technical violations. So by my last uh, count, not having counted personally, but what's been reported in the media, I think there have been well over 300, if not towards 400 um, BIPA filings already in the state. Um, And the point about harm, I think, is an equally applicable lesson for any privacy law. This is just a really good uh, sort of unfortunate poster child for what can happen, maybe unintended consequences in a state when you're allowing for lawsuits without a showing of harm. Yeah. And, you know, I've noticed in Illinois, um, several companies are wary of rolling out interesting and I think consumer beneficial security and other tools because of the difficulties in complying with BIPA and the fear of lawsuits, even if you're compliant, doesn't mean you're not going to get sued. So the items that we've just discussed are some of the major themes or the tools that we included in our toolkit that we would hope that policymakers in the states would consider when they're thinking about privacy legislation. Is there anything else that we haven't addressed that you would want to add about what we might see in the states going forward? 
You know, I think one thing that I find lacking in some of the discussions is a focus on how some of these legislative proposals affect the non-quote tech companies, right? There's a lot of brick and mortar regular companies that were not built to handle data. They must handle data because of the, the way of the economy, but they're not the big boogeyman tech companies. They're regular companies, large and small. And I think that needs to be explored to understand how these laws and particularly private rights to sue and these class action threats will affect how they're doing business and how they're communicating with their customers. I think that's a great point. I mean, policymakers think a lot like consumers do on this issue, and consumers are most likely to, I think, go immediately to examples such as social media or big tech companies when thinking about these issues, and policymakers are do that in a similar vein. So part of our effort will also to be to remind folks that the, these laws will impact businesses of all industries, all sizes, not just the one or two examples that come immediately to mind. So that's an important point in all this advocacy. Okay, Megan, let's end on a big picture note. Uh-oh. <laughs> It'll be easy. If you can predict the future, that's not the easy part. Uh, what's one new innovation that you would like to see? Um, this actually goes back to our discussion of biometrics because I am desperate to get rid of passwords. I find myself constantly doing password resets, and um, I think it's it's not consumer-friendly. So I would love to see, contrary to maybe Illinois' approach, a flowering of biometric um Opportunities that could streamline consumers' uses, of course, with appropriate security controls and use limitations. Um, but I think that has a lot of promise to simplify folks' lives as we see more transactions moving to mobile and otherwise to actually have good authentication that's not quite so burdensome for consumers. Well, that sounds like a great idea. I will sign up for that and pay for it as well. Um, it also makes my point a little more petty because as for me, I'm still holding out for a time machine out of a DeLorean. Okay. <laughs> so thank you, Megan, and to all of our listeners for joining us. For more information on the issues we've discussed today, please visit instituteforlegalreform.com. See you next time. Uh-huh.